0: God of waters. God of the sky. God in the morning. God in the night. God of the desert. God of the rain. God in the busy. God in the mundane. God of the mountain. God of the plains, God in the laughter, God in the pain. He's God of the promise. What He says remains true. He does what He's promised. today just very well might be the most important message that I could ever have a chance to share with you. If you're watching online, you may have just logged in to the most important message of your life uh, because we're getting ready to walk into a passage of scripture that has the greatest implications upon not only your natural life here on earth, but your life uh, eternal in heaven And um, if, in fact, and maybe you don't believe that there is an eternal life beyond this life that we live in, but if, in fact, what I'm getting ready to tell you is true, and I believe it is, then it's every reason that you and I would all take serious note of the conversation we're getting ready to have to make sure, in fact, that you've examined your heart in light of what you're going to hear today and that you've responded accordingly, because you will see today that there is no path that you can earn or attain Uh, an earthly reward beyond this life without a relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no other path. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him. We're going to learn about that today in first-person format because Jesus is going to tell us about that. But the great C.H. Spurgeon uh, is once quoted by saying this phrase that we'll start with this morning, and it's a bit of a word salad, but Read with me as I try to read it from an angle, but here's what it says. If we were asked to read to a dying man who didn't know the gospel, we should probably select this chapter, chapter 3, which we're going today, of John. We should probably select this chapter as the most suitable one for such an occasion. And what is good for dying men is also good for us. For that is what we are. And how soon we may be actually at the gates of death, none of us can tell. You see, we don't know how long we have in this life, but no doubt there is a time for all of us, and when God appoints that time, there's nothing you and I can do about that. And so as we begin John chapter 3 today, man, I pray that you'd lean in and you'd listen, and I hope that I've created a sense of urgency for you. But now listen to a sense of love. I want you to hear the urgency in my message, but if you miss the love that's also in this message, then you won't be able to hear the urgency. Because the God who loves you so much is not here to condemn you. He has brought his son into the world, not to condemn you, but that the world through him might be saved. And it begins with a conversation with a man named... Nicodemus. Let's look at it together in John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus. He was a Jewish leader who was also a Pharisee. And after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. And he said, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you because, and to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Nicodemus has seen something in Jesus, and and what's happening, apparently, you know, I mean, we know the wedding at Cana, we know the miracle that took place there, John doesn't tell us any more miracles, but Nicodemus is acting as though he's, he's seen other miracles and other signs, so I don't know what he's seen in Jesus other than the clearing of the temple, the cleansing of the temple that you and I talked about last week, but there's something that has drawn Nicodemus to Jesus, now, who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus is a Jewish religious leader. He's a religious leader, a Greek religious leader with a, a Jewish religious leader with a Greek name, which is kind of interesting. He's highly educated, highly respected. He is one of the, the, the court of 70 elders known as the Sanhedrin. He's the highest religious body among the Jews. He is, he is a, a very influential person. Uh, and as you know, this is the, the same group of people who will be responsible for the death of our Savior. And so um, for him to have a heartstring being pulled by our Messiah uh, certainly would cause him reason for um, a professional um, uh, challenge for himself. And so he was both professionally and personally religious. And this is not outside of who Jesus was. He was professionally and personally religious, highly successful in everything that Nicodemus would do highly educated, highly influential. But Nicodemus was drawn to Jesus. He had seen something in the sidelines, that, and in that sidelines of what he was watching and observing from a distance, something began to pull and draw and pull on the heartstrings of his heart, and he knew that he had to seek him out personally. And the only way that he could do that, in a way that he could really fully understand without the pressures of everyone else around him, Maybe that's why he selected the evening in which to do that. And maybe for you, maybe even watching online, you're watching this message right now in the late evening hours, in the darkness, dealing with something heavy inside your life and struggling with something that is just too even great to even share with the outside world. But now there is something that has caught your attention about Jesus and now you're inquiring for some reason you ended up here. Because this message dealt with the, 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 this verse that you've heard about that for God so loves the world that he gave his only son, and, and people seem to think that there's an answer to life in there. And, and today you are coming sometime, maybe even in the cover of darkness. Maybe your family doesn't even know. Maybe you're sitting on the couch with a pair of headphones on and they don't even know that you're inquiring about spiritual things. Maybe you're in this room today and you're still wrestling and you haven't shared with your loved one that you're here today, and you think to yourself, there's something that's drawing me to Jesus, but. If I'm being honest, I'm still kind of in the dark a little bit about how I feel, and I'm in the dark about how I'm chasing after and seeking after. But something inside of you is drawing you to Jesus. Nicodemus was personally drawn to Jesus. He was drawn to him by, by what he knew about him and could see about him, but there was something else. Nicodemus had an Old Testament understanding about the Messiah, and he began to, I believe, connect some dots and see some things that would make him go, huh, there's something more maybe to this guy Compared to what he's read and understood in the Old Testament, compared to what he sees in Jesus' life. But he had to be professionally cautious, and so he came to Jesus at night. Then Nicodemus and Jesus get into a very interesting conversation, and I think people discredit him so often in this conversation because you have to remember, and I've spent a lot of time helping you understand, Nicodemus is incredibly intellectual, he is not a dumb person. He is not even unwise. He is very smart. He wouldn't be a part of the group he was in if he didn't have some level of intelligence and uh, and wisdom, probably discernment. And he begins to have a conversation with Jesus and he asks questions that quite frankly seem almost simpleton style questions. And if we're not careful, we can think that he's asking dumb questions. But in truth, when all of us come to Jesus Christ, there has to be some childlike questions that we have to ask and have answered in our own heart for our heart to open up in that place that God has designed for us in that special sanctuary of our heart that he has designed for he and for you to fellowship with one another. And it's in that childlike faith that he needs to get you to ask those very simple but important and powerful theological understanding questions. But just as you describe something to a child, they don't necessarily understand everything that you're telling them. The same was true with Nicodemus. He would hear Jesus begin to talk about some complicated things, and it would kind of blow his mind. It would confuse him. And so he would ask questions, and Jesus would kind of banter back. He says, aren't you the religious leader? Aren't you the guy that knows it all? I mean, come on, you should know this by now. You can almost catch a little bit of banter that's taking place in this conversation. Jesus is not trying to insult him. He's challenging him. He's challenging him to look deeper in himself, to look deeper into his knowledge. And as we read that today, I want you to look at that with that lens. This is not Jesus trying to taunt someone. This is Jesus trying to help him think. And this is what Jesus is calling us to do today. He doesn't want you to blindly or foolishly come after and to follow him. He wants you to intentionally surrender your life to him, knowing full well the cost of following him as your Lord and as your Savior. And so we don't know what the conversation or how it began but it almost appears that John picks up this conversation midstream. Because Nick, what we hear is Nicodemus say that you, know, you are clearly from God because we, your teachings and the things we've seen you do are, are from God. And then Jesus pivots and immediately says, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. So maybe there was some questions and some conversations, but it leads up to this verse in verse 3. I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God, is what he says. Actually, you can't see it. And in this one statement, this is powerful, because remember who he's talking to. Uh, He's talking to a Jewish leader. And in this one statement, he exposes a fault line in the Jewish assumption that their racial identity is what gives them the uh, ability to have this lineage uh, and the assurance that they will have a place in God's kingdom. There's something in their mind that says that I'm a part of this Abrahamic kind of Jew kind of line that says that I, I by default I'm going to fall inside the line and, be act, and have access to God's kingdom. In fact, it was widely taught among the Abrahamic Jews that they were automatically assured of heaven. And in some cases, rabbis in some documents, it says that rabbis actually taught that, that Abraham, this is crazy as it sounds, but that Abraham stands at the gate of hell to make sure that no Jew actually could actually accidentally go into hell. And so there there is this thinking that, that, that we have this protection because of our ethnicity. And Jesus begins to explain that a man's first birth or his genealogy doesn't assure them of the kingdom of God. Just because you were born into something, just like, you know, yes, we understand that as American citizens, it gives us rights because we're born inside this country, but not so much so in our natural birth when it comes to the kingdom of God. The only way for that to be true is that there has to be a new birth. Jesus says you have to be born again. And the word born again, the the phrase again, and and it's interesting because I I wish they would translate it different because when you look at all the different translations, and even most of you, if you have your Bibles open, we'll see a little footnote next to the word born again. And As you see the word born again, the the, the phrase that is used there is actually born from above. It's actually a more literal translation. Is that unless you're born from above, it's Jesus is saying there's a spiritual birth, and then that spiritual birth then actually will give you an inheritance that can't be, it can't be stolen, it can't be perished, it can't be taken. This is an inheritance that is lasting and it's eternal. It's not your nationality, it's not your genealogy on earth, but it is your identity that can only be found through your relationship with God in a new birth. And that was a game changer. The Jewish people, it really quite rocked them. And he says, well, what do you, Nicodemus in verse four, he says, well, what do you mean? I, I, how can, and so this is where I think there's a little bit of probably a chuckle inside of him because he's getting ready to ask Jesus kind of a funny question. He's like, so what do you mean? Like, uh, do I got to go back inside my mom and get reborn again? Like, how does this work? So he's at, he's at, he gets it. He's, he, he understands there's some type of difference. And he's just trying to kind of interplay with Jesus. And Jesus interplays right back with him as a wordplay exchange. Jesus is like, no, it has nothing to do with your physical birth. Notice what he, what he says as he, as he moves on. Is there's a rebirth that takes place. And, and what we hear is like he, he says to, to him that, that um, you know, I assure you no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. And actually, your Go Deeper really digs deep on verse 5. But all throughout the Bible, you'll see this theme of, being, of, of new birth and new life all throughout the New Testament. It's a beautiful picture, and you can't escape it as you look through. And here's like seven or eight references. First Peter 1, we were born again by God's great mercy. There's that born again, born from above. 1 Peter 1, 22, we're born again from an imperishable seed. Titus 3, 5 speaks of the washing of regeneration. Romans 6, 1, dying with Jesus and rising again gives us a new life in him. We see in 1 Corinthians 1 that that we are reborn as new babes and that we're a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It tells us that we are a new creation, that Jesus says that we are a new creation in Galatians 6, 5. Paul tells us, Paul says that we're a new person created after God in righteousness in Ephesians 4. Hebrews says that at the beginning of our Christian life, we're like children. There's this regeneration. There's this new life that comes. And our our gospel writers, as well as the the early writers of the New Testament, are telling us, man, there's this theme. It has nothing to do with our natural, physical life. he's like, well, do I got to go back and be reborn in my mother's womb? And he's like, no, you're missing the point. It's a spiritual rebirth. As you go look into your Go Deeper this week, you'll, you will see that, you know, the passage where it says, born of water and of spirit, does that mean that, uh, that I have to be baptized in order to, to be saved? Is that a requirement for baptism? And some denominations, some scholars will, 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 will use this verse, I believe, out of context to try to build that case around that. And while baptism is commanded for all of us, and it is desired for all of us to have an obedient heart in the area of baptism... I believe what God's trying to tell us in this picture is, is not to jump over and make a bigger theological statement about baptism. I think what he's trying to help us understand is that Jesus is qu- quickly using the same conversation piece that, that Nicodemus is using to try to help Nicodemus understand there's a fleshly birth, and we know that when a water breaks, we're born, right? That's how it happens. And so Jesse as he says this, this flesh, that we're born of water... That brings us into our natural life, but there has to be something born of the Spirit to bring us into our spiritual life, our spiritual rebirth. And so we don't need to read too much into it. You can look at your Go Deeper and see more of the context there. But it's also quite possible that, that, God is, uh, that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus kind of in a double-layer correlation to ba- basically tell him, because Nicodemus would be very, very familiar with the Old Testament prophets and, and the book of Ezekiel. And, and so maybe Jesus was making a correlation to help him understand about this new life and this regeneration that takes place when he would. Maybe he was trying to point him out in his mind about Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 says this: what a beautiful passage of scripture. It says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. There's the water element. And you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away. And you will no longer worship idols. Continue on. It says this, that then I will give you, so beautiful, a new heart. There's that regeneration. And I will put a new spirit in you. And I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. How beautiful is that? Maybe this is what he was trying to do. Whatever the case is. Jesus was trying to help Nicodemus understand it's not something you can do in your flesh to earn spiritual life. Now, pay attention really carefully here. There is nothing that you and I can do, not how we're born or nor how we live, that can in give us the ability to earn eternal life. The only way that you and I can receive eternal life is that we have to receive it as a gift. And it's an exchange of us surrendering our life to God. We believe and we surrender our life to him. That belief, it's, that's, what it, that's what it's saying, is that when we believe in something so strongly, you dedicate your life to that. You're surrendering your life to something. It's not just a, yeah, I believe in electricity. It's I'm surrendering my life to it. I'm believing in my heart. I'm confessing with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we make that glorious declaration inside our heart, we can cross from death to life. Should a believer be baptized? Yes. Because Jesus commanded it. The Bible commands it. Jesus uh, demonstrated it. He was obedient to it. And I think we should be obedient to it. Can every believer get baptized? No. I think the greatest example of that is a thief on the cross. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And didn't say, hey, can you guys get us down from the cross for a moment so I can baptize this guy? And there's certain cases in life, as you know, that people make decisions in their deathbeds and they certainly can't have that moment of opportunity. Those moments are fleeting and they surrender their life to Christ. The key for us here is, is there a willingness or is there an obstinance regarding your baptism? Do you have a willing spirit to be baptized? Or is there something holding you back, a pride or arrogance or something that says, I'm not doing that? Because then it's a heart issue, and I would say that's something to be examined for sure. And so Nicodemus, was, in his bantering with Jesus, would continue, and, and, and I think the great ex- explanation, again, why I think this is where it goes, because he continues the conversation. Jesus says in verse 6, that in John chapter 3, that, that humans, it says humans can reprodu- reproduce only human life. He's going back to that same illustration. He says, do I got to go back to my mother's womb? Let's talk about flesh. Well, only flesh can produce human life. But the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So he's just making that correlation. So don't be surprised when I say that you must be born again or born from above. There has to be some other transaction that takes place where you must receive Jesus Christ. Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, You don't understand everything about the wind. He goes on to talk about this wind. And he goes on this way He says this The wind blows, Nicodemus, wherever it wants. And just as you can hear the wind, you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Yes, I know what I'm saying to you. is kind of baffling you. That's why Nicodemus would go on to say this next phrase. How is this possible? I, I, Like, what? He's like, huh? He's like, how is this possible? I don't quite understand. He says, yeah, it's hard to understand. This is a very complicated thing to wrap our heads around. How God works on all that, I don't know. But it's true, and this is how it takes place. It makes sense to us to think, and it makes sense to a Pharisee to think, that if I follow the religious rules, and I do all the right stuff, and I'm born from the, in the right lineage, that I will have eternal life, because that is how his mind is functioning. Jesus is wrecking his paradigm, and he's realizing, there's nothing I can do. So how is it happening behind the scenes? And Jesus says, just like the wind, you'll never figure that out. It's only something that God truly can make that aware to you. He says, I assure you, I tell you in verse 11 that we we tell you what we know and what we've seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about the earthly things, well, how is it possible that you're going to believe me about the heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven in return, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. He's saying, I know that what I'm trying to explain to you is complicated. Believe me, I get it. I understand. I can see it in your eyes. I can see you're trying to process and reconcile all that. And if I had tried to unpack all the ways of heaven to you, I would absolutely blow your mind because no one can understand fully God's ways and God's mind. But Jesus said, listen, I'm from heaven. I'm not confused by this. I'm not just simply have been there and figured it out to come back to tell you. I'm from there and I'm here to tell you how it works. It's not a mystery to me. And I'm trying to make it as plain and clear to you as I possibly can. So, on the surface, it could look like this evangelistic conversation wasn't really going very well. Here it is, Jesus trying to talk to Nicodemus, who clearly has a different viewpoint. And we begin to wonder I wonder if Nicodemus is ever going to figure this out. Because there's no moment in Scripture where you actually see Nicodemus go, and then he bowed on his knees, and he said to Jesus, I confess, or I will follow you. And Jesus says, come follow me. And then he left everything and followed him. There was not the exchange that we're kind of used to seeing in the the Gospels. And so we see this moment, and we meet this character, and it seems like Jesus is kind of like not getting through to the individual. And instead of trying to convince him or to clarify some complicated heavenly truth that he was getting stuck on, Jesus said, let me bring it back for a minute to something that you will understand. Nicodemus knew the Old Testament really well. And so he said, here's what you'll understand. You remember in Moses' day, Numbers 21, he would remind him of, that when there was a serpent that uh, that Israel was being judged, there was a serpent that was biting everyone, a poisonous snake, and everyone was dying. And, And God instructed Moses to take a serpent and to put it on a rod and to raise it up. And if anyone would look, just look gaze upon, look upon by faith at this serpent, they would not die from the bite of the, of the serpent. It's a very crazy story. Numbers 21, you can look it up. It's fascinating if you've never read it. It's the same reason why in the medical symbol that we have today, when you look at any medical symbol, that you see a snake lifted up on a pole. That's where that image comes from. But if anyone would look upon that snake on that pole, they would have their they're, they would be saved from imminent death from that poisonous snake. That bronze serpent represents sin that's judged and, and redemption that was available to all that would accept it. And you didn't have to look at it. You could think, that's stupid, I'm not doing that, and die. <laughs> or you could receive it to say, okay, it doesn't make sense to me fully, but if God said, this is how I get salvation, if this is how I get rescued, this is what I'll do. In the same way that Jesus bore our sins on the cross, he was lifted up. Our sins were judged. And our judgment was upon Jesus. Sin judged, redemption available to all who would look to Jesus alone for their salvation. It was available to all. Unfortunately, not all would receive it. In Numbers 21, the people were not saved because of any specific work they did or by their own merit. It's just because they looked upon the bronze serpent. They had to trust that something that appeared so seemingly simple or too easy or too bizarre or too hokey, I don't know, to give them such incredible results, only a fool would ignore. Only a fool who knows their true imminent death would not look and see an opportunity of a lifetime to have forgiveness and to have freedom. For them, it was being rescued from a snake bite, but for us, it's so much greater, isn't it? Isaiah 45, says this, that let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am God and there is no other. We might be willing to do a hundred things to earn our salvation. But God only commands us to do one. Look to him. Trust him. Believe in him. How simple he made it for all of us. And how much we've complicated it with our own ways and thinking. It makes sense that I would overcomplicate it by thinking I would have to dance for that hug to dance for that forgiveness, to dance for that eternal life, to per be performance-based. Some churches will teach that that's the way that it's attained. But nowhere in Scripture will you find that to be true. It's only through God's grace. And there's nothing that you can do to make Him love you more, and there's nothing that you can do that will make, you love, make Him love you less. Isn't that crazy? He just loves you. And He's created a plan that the smartest person in the room and the most simple person in the room can understand. (laughs) You don't have to be a religious leader and you can be a child to understand how easy it is to come to faith in Christ. The gospel is simply this. Jesus would now make a profound statement that would then be written upon our hearts and written on signs that we will see during the Super Bowl of a verse called John 3.16 that we know is the gospel, wrapped up in a bow in a very beautiful verse that our Lord and Savior would be the one to say. It wouldn't be Paul or one of the other disciples. It wouldn't be anyone else who would pen these words. It would be Jesus giving you and I the way the simplest, cleanest way, and then he would find a way somehow in his sovereignty. (laughs) It's so cool to me. Wouldn't it be just like God to package up the gospel into one verse and then somehow convince the entire world to memorize it and then convince crazy people to bring it on signs to football games right across the world? And everywhere you go, John 3.16, will be spoken, heard, and understood in every tribe and every tongue and every language. Do you think that's coincidence, or do you think God has something to do with that? Here is the gospel. For God so loved the world. It's how you probably memorized it. But in truth, it's better translated in this way. For God loved the world in this way. Such a powerful statement wrapped up there. He loved the world in this way. Are you ready to hear this way? This is the way that he loved the world. That he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Have you ever made that decision? This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's also cool that no matter just about any translation you look up, you can find the acrostic of the word, of the, of the word gospel. The next slide, you can see it. John 3.16, next slide, if you don't mind. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. See how I did that? I have bad breath. So just <laughs> take a look at that, how beautiful it is. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, perish in eternal life. It spells gospel. To me, it's just kind of cool. What spiritual significance does it have? Zero. Is it just cool? Absolutely. <laughs> look in your Bible and highlight that and just know that God has packaged his gospel in such a way for you to clearly understand it and for you to wrap it around your heart. But it's more than just putting it in your mind to believe it. You've got to have it in your heart to understand it. Because the verse would continue to say, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his, wor- his son into the wor- world so that the world through his son might be saved. Folks, this is exactly what Jesus has done. So did Nicodemus get saved? I wonder if you know. As you go on through the book of John, you will hear Nicodemus mentioned a couple times. But for some, I'm getting ready to tell you something that you probably have read but forgotten. Probably have read but overlooked. And you would think to yourself, well, that wasn't, I didn't see that before. But we first, you know, so I, I maybe, I don't know. It doesn't tell us that Nicodemus accepted Christ in that interaction. But later in John chapter 7, we hear from Nicodemus again. He's actually in the court with the Pharisees in Sanhedrin and Sanhedrin. And there is this time where he is uh, he's on record as speaking up. On behalf of Jesus, he actually says, I, I, think, I think, you know, the guy should at least be given a fair trial. We shouldn't be so harsh to judge the guy. We need to at least give him a fair trial. It's the first time we actually see this man who was once hiding in darkness, now kind of going on record of, you know, saying something. And it was to such a degree, by the way, in chapter 7 of John, that um, it was actually in, in verse, what verse? I wrote myself a note for that, verse 52, that, um, that one of the leaders of the group turned him and says, don't tell me you're from one of the, now you're, from, now you're from Galilee too. Whatever Nicodemus said about trying to give Jesus a fair trial, they're like, don't tell me you're buying that. Don't tell me you're drinking the Kool-Aid. Don't tell me you, don't tell me you too, Nicodemus. We don't know any more about that conversation. But what we do see is something Dramatic. And while I don't have a narrative of the day that Nicodemus got on his knees and surrendered his life to Jesus Christ, I have something far greater than that. A Pharisee, a Sanhedrin, who first came out in darkness, and second would just kind of turn up in the mix of his life, a defense of his Savior, would later take the biggest and boldest stance. Now remember here, when Jesus was crucified, who was at the cross? There was only one disciple that we know of, right? John with his mother, Mary, Jesus addresses him from the cross. And it was after his death, it was um, the the preparation of of Sabbath was coming, it was a Passover, it was all this stuff. Remember, Jesus' body had to be taken down very quickly because it was, you know, all of the religious ceremonies that was going to take place. Jesus' disciples were nowhere to be found because they were scared. John is there at the foot of the cross with his mom and a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Do you remember the name? He was the rich man that had a tomb and he says, Pilate, can I take his body? Can I give him a proper burial? You you know that story really well, right? But what you may not know is in that story, another man is mentioned helping Joseph of Arimathea and his name was Nicodemus. It says that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and spices to anoint and to prepare Jesus' body for burial. It describes how these men were responsible for preparing Jesus' body. Keep in mind, he's a Pharisee who's supposed to be preparing to stay ceremonial clean for the things he has to do in his professional career. And now he's touching a dead body, like you've never seen before. And he's helping Joseph of Arimathea wrap up Jesus in grave clothes and to place him in the tomb. It's fascinating to me that a man who at first began to be afraid as he sought Jesus later stood there when the rest of the disciples didn't have the strength or courage to do it. He was there with Jesus. And what greater proof than to have one of the Pharisees be a part of wrapping a body up. No doubt, Nicodemus became a huge champion for the proof of the resurrection. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he would probably say. And I was there the day he died, and I wrapped his body, and I laid him in the tomb. And just as I wrapped him, is just how we found him, except there was no body left. His body was not taken. He resurrected just as he said. Folks, we serve a risen Savior. There's no joke, there's no game, there's no religious sh- uh, you know, shenanigans taking place here. I- I'm telling you, today's message is likely the most important message of your entire life, to wrap your head around and to get right. Because if, if you don't reconcile who Jesus Christ is, and if you don't reconcile that he's the only way for you to have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, you will be absolutely heartbroken on the day when he returns and you realize you've got it wrong. It's not about religious rule following. Nicodemus learned that. It wasn't about earning salvation, Nicodemus earned that, I mean understood that. It wasn't about the family that you were born into, it was about a personal decision that leads to life change. So my question to you is, have you made the personal decision, and is your life different? Nicodemus' life was different, wasn't it? He went from hiding to publicly being on record as a follower of Christ. Have you gone from hiding your faith, that private faith that you keep, to being publicly known as a follower of Jesus Christ? Your first step in which you do that is through baptism. But that's only the baby step. The rest of it is how you live your life in the cubicle, the water cooler, in your home as a father, as a mother, as a sister, as a brother, as a friend. Oh, I pray that you know him, and I pray that you would build your life upon him. Nicodemus built a brand new life based upon who Jesus was, didn't he? His professional career was probably put into some some stress after this moment, but he was building a brand new life because he was a new creation, and he had been born from above, and what used to matter to him suddenly didn't matter anymore. Oh, I hope that you have ears to hear everything that I just said there for you. And I pray today is the day that you would surrender your life to him. I'm going to ask our prayer team right now to come up to the front. Because today is an opportunity for you to say yes to Jesus Christ. And as the band sings this final song, I don't want you to hesitate a moment. I want you to come forward and say, I'm ready. I don't need to know all the answers to all my questions because there's some some stuff you'll just never figure out, like where does the wind come from and where is it blowing to? Jesus understands that. But do you understand the basics of what you need? When your eyes are open to spiritual things, you'll begin to understand those spiritual things more and more as you mature. There's things that I did not know the day I said yes to Jesus that I know today, but there's still many things that I don't know today that I wish I knew today. (laughs) But today can be the beginning of your journey. At the end of this message, you can talk to us. We'll be back again. And across the front of the stage, are some new believer packets with a little piece of paper that says, start here. If you don't want to talk to one of us, but you want one of these Bibles, you come get it. Free of charge. You don't have to steal it or act like you're taking it away privately. Just take it and go. We won't even chase you down. If you're not talking to us about it, we know that you don't want to be interrupted. We're not going to mess with you. I promise, okay? But please don't miss an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, Thank you for the chance to be able to open your word and thank you for the the power of the text. Thank you, God, for helping us navigate that today and to see your beautiful provision that you've given us with your son. Thank you, God, for giving us the opportunity to come to you just like Nicodemus did. In fact, inside us all, I guess, Father, is a little bit of Nicodemus in every one of us. We're here just asking questions and we're trying to figure out, Lord, in our life. Is it true, Lord, that you love us no matter what our past looks like? Is it true that this forgiveness of sins and this eternal life that's promised is is not conditioned on the mistakes I've made or the family that I grew up in? Is it possible, Lord, that all I have to do is really just turn my eyes to you and surrender my life to you, and you will give me a new life? Is it possible that my old life, the life that I seem to make nothing but mistakes and bad choices and decisions that's full of shame and regret, is it possible that today that can go away? Lord, I believe you're shouting from your vantage point in heaven into the hearts of men and women right now saying, yes, it's possible. It's true. But they must believe. Father, you are worthy of every song that we sang today. And we are needy and in need of this salvation. We've declared our dependence upon you today and our giving. And Father, we've sat and we've listened to the teaching of your word. But now is the appointed time, Father, that we've committed to you that we would respond. And so, Father, for some, they're gonna be it's a hard walk. For some, they're gonna think, I don't wanna walk down an aisle. But in their heart, they know, Lord, you're telling them to. Today is the day of their salvation. Give them boldness, Father, to say yes to you. That first step is a declaration in their heart as well as to this room that they're going to give their hearts to you. I pray, God, that you would allow them to say yes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.